This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. We ought to quit asking the question, what church do you belong to? But we ought to ask, how do you live now? How have you been doing? Do you pay your debts? Do you live right and live good and keep the commandments? Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We are listening to a sermon from Samuel P. Jones. Joel, this is a sermon I never really thought about doing. Like when we pictured Revive Thoughts, mm-hmm. I never thought to myself, let's get a, make sure we get a temperance sermon. You know, Black Plague, yeah. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon. Temperance sermons, never on the list. It, um, but but it kind of makes sense in retrospect. Like it would be on our on our palette of, uh, of yeah. eras and sermons, right? There was a lot of them. I mean, if you look at it from... The temperance movement lasted longer than I realized when yeah. I did a little research. It's from like the early 1800s even the late 1700s people are starting to get on board with this and it goes all the way in i mean till the till the 19 early early 1900s for sure right and it ends up with a decade of laws and and you could argue you can make the point like hey well you know the reason you didn't think you were going to do it is because you're not pro prohibition and that's true you could definitely make the case of why am i listening to a sermon about laws that are 100 you know that passed 130 years ago people you know the the prohibition didn't work and all that stuff or at least it didn't work and that it kept people happy so why are we talking about this the reason is is because what i think there's a lot of stuff you can pull from what they're preaching Mm. from and apply it to stuff today maybe in your head you don't apply it to alcohol but you can definitely yeah. look at the ideas that they're preaching against and find things in your life that you need to apply it to. Yeah, and I think that's true for a, a lot of the eras of Revive yeah. Us. People from different generations live through different historical moments, live through different things that are passionate to them. And while we might, we might not be in the same uh, realm that they are at that moment, it doesn't mean what they're saying doesn't have truth to it or, or can be extruded and applied to our life. But also... Maybe there are certain listeners that this does apply very literally. Might, literally, I was about to say, it's also very possible, too, that it's been a long time since you've really thought about this subject, and hearing a Prohibition sermon may may actually, you know, I'm not saying we're going to try to make a bunch of teetotaling, pro, get the Prohibition movement going again mm-hmm. in 2021, but it may, it's sometimes good to reflect and go, where do I stand on this? And if I was sitting in this sermon in that chapel, in that moment, how would that affect me, and how does it affect me now? And thinking through these ideas is not bad. It's different. It's yeah. again, it's not what we expected, but I think it'll be a good one for everyone to listen to. And, and hopefully you come to the end of it and you go, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I listened to that. It yeah. did make me rethink some things. I, I enjoyed listening to this one a lot. Not only is it kind of fascinating to hear the speaker's really good. He's got, yeah. he's got great illustrations. Um, it's an engaging sermon uh, besides the content in and of yeah. itself. So it's an, it's an, it's an engaging listen, which I really enjoyed as well. Troy and I kind of, uh, we'll occasionally talk about how controversial we think a specific episode is going to be. <laughs> and this was one of those conversations where we thought, you know, maybe we might get some pushback. We might get some feedback on that. Um, that's okay. Yes. You know, like we understand everyone is is in a different place. Everyone comes through different walks of lives. 
I guarantee you we have listeners that will enjoy a beer after mowing the lawn. And we probably have other listeners that have probably never touched a drop of alcohol in their entire life. We here at Revive Thoughts have always really respected the listener and the listener's ability to be smart enough to engage with the content and take away from it what is important and and ideally the truths that uh, exist in these old sermons and apply it to furthering and strengthening our current relationship with God. Man, Joel, I could not have said it by myself. And the people, it's not that the people don't have opinions. It's just that you, you, we all understand what we're doing here, which is drawing this history back to life. And so we know that some of these guys and some of these thoughts are imperfect, but there's also good truth and wisdom to go through. So again, Joel, couldn't have said it better myself. And with that, uh, I toss it over to you. Samuel P. Jones. And I think the more we get into his backstory, the more, again, we realize where he's coming from because uh, he comes from a pretty alcoholic abusive lifestyle and when god saves you out of that it affects how you see the world and it it affects what you think are important in life and how people should act and it hasn't gone away i mean the the alcoholism didn't in you know it is still a there are Mm. people in our lives who we will run into who are still alcoholics this is still an important thing and the other thing too that kind of opened my eyes to this was when i think of the temperance movement i see a textbook and I see, you know, this group did this and then they outlawed alcohol and they were all very boring and they sat very prim and proper. And it just, it was a very boring thing. Listening to the sermon, I was like, this was not a boring movement, whether you, you know, you like mm-hmm. it or not. Obviously we're not living in that era. This was a very passionate mm-hmm. group of people. It's, it's so fascinating to me to just see the different yeah movements that move through the church throughout times. Cause there's almost a clockwork to it. There's a pendulum where you can see people uh, get passionate about different things in different ways. And throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s, temperance was definitely one of those (laughs) things that started a fire in the church for sure. Jones, born in 1847 in Alabama. He moved to Cartersville, Georgia in 1855 after his mother died. And fun fact here, the reader of today's sermon, the speaker, actually lives about 30 minutes away from Cartersville, currently so uh and we love he's he's got he nails that southern accent what what you're gonna hear in this sermon is actually probably darn pretty accurate to what samuel p jones actually sounded like in real life which is very very rare for revived thoughts yeah. readers we get a lot we do get complaints from people in europe like can you please quit americanizing every single one yeah. of these guys sorry that we know they didn't have american accents we understand <laughs> that his grandparents and great-grandparents and several uncles were methodist ministers and during the american civil war samuel p jones he was pretty young he was he would have been around in 18 by the end of the war in 1865 But he also was a part of it in his teen years. He was a part of the Union and traveled through Kentucky as part of their military campaign. If you'd listen to our episode on C.I. Schofield, this next part might sound familiar. If not, uh, go check out our Schofield episode. That's a really interesting episode as well. It's really, you know, I read this story and I was like, man, I feel like I see the Schofield storyline playing out almost Mm -hmm. a lot of ways similar. But just before we get into that, I wanted to say it is kind of amazing how much the Civil War shaped that era and and not just obviously in a societal way but just in the people who went through it we don't think about it a lot but those preachers after they went and experienced that war they would have been changed by it and that's a lot of people just on our show we've talked about dl moody ci schofield samuel p jones bh carroll and several others who would have on some level either known people who died in that war were on the battlefields themselves they they knew i mean bh carroll was known for being on the front line of pretty much every battle they knew what it was like 
and just imagine the effect that had on all of them for the rest of their lives. And as they're preaching from the pulpits, you know, we talk about uh, PTSD and stuff like that. This would have been some of those early, they would have had those experiences. And for non-Christians like Jones and Schofield, this seemed to haunt them really bad until they came to Christ. Jones uh, started a prominent career in law. He, again, just like Schofield, they both went into law and he seemed to be doing really well. But then he started drinking and that drinking went through the roof. I did some research on drinking in America after the Civil War, and it actually kind of makes sense why it would have gone through the roof for so sure. many of these guys. Uh, we could do a whole episode on the Civil War and even just its link to Prohibition, um, but drinking was said to have been at much higher rates at, just in the 1800s than it was today. But apparently, because the war, one of the things they often gave you when you were injured was opium or alcohol. And so imagine, you know, you get injured in war, which was very common and your medicine is alcohol or opium, you can see how that would kind of make you dependent as you're wearing off those injuries. They just keep giving that to you more and more and more. I mean, actually, a lot of famous distilleries today that we have, like Jack Daniels, were started during the Civil War to kind of deal with the war effort for medicine. Considering that, and I mean, the, the rates of people who got addicted to opium were at least 200,000 or so, according to one study I read. Imagine that plus way more for alcohol. And you can see how a guy like Samuel Jones could get caught up, start drinking, um, goats going pretty hard around that kind of era, much like Schofield. But the problem for him and probably many countless others is it will cost them everything. Yeah, within a few years, he was no longer a prominent lawyer. He was working 12-hour days on hot furnaces for the railroad. He spent multiple days away from home on benders and had a reputation for beating his wife. He seemed kind of destined to go nowhere, but then he found out that his father was sick and dying, and he went to his house nearly every night to keep his father company as his father slowly deteriorated. But also, along with him, came the local minister who would spend the evenings with his father as well and pray alongside his father. Finally, the last night came, and you can almost think of it like it, like an Old Testament chapter, right? The father has all of the kids gathered around the bed, and he's speaking these, these last words of wisdoms to each one, going one by one and, and parting these words upon them. And they're all good until he comes to Jones. He turns to Jones, and I think the best way to, to communicate it is just to read an excerpt from a biography that was written. Yeah. So Samuel Jones, uh, this is the quote from the story. Sam Jones was standing at the foot of the bed, looking down into his father's face. When his father came to him for a moment, he was speechless while looking into his son's face too. Finally, he said, my poor, wicked, wayward, reckless boy, you have broken the heart of your sweet wife and brought me down in sorrow to my grave. Promise me, my boy, to meet me in heaven. Standing there, convulsed with emotion from head to foot, he stepped around to the side of the bed and took his father's bony hand in his, his and said, Father, I'll make you the promise. I'll quit. I'll quit. I'll quit. He said it in such a way that his dying father had every assurance that he actually meant it. A change was seen in his father's countenance and the pledge from his boy, he believed, would mean the reformation of his life. This is Justin from the If Songs Could Preach podcast. We transform solid worship songs into sermons. Come along with us as we discover great worship songs and talk about their theology and instrumentation. If songs could preach, this is how they would do it. 
not, not long after that, he would come to know the Lord. He would get saved by his own grandfather's preaching, in fact. He went to his wife and he told her that he was sorry for the way that he had treated her and the way that he had been. He confessed how terrible of a husband that he had been to her, abusing her and beating her, and that if she would have him, he would be a different man. And she broke down in tears and told him that she had been praying for this for years. A few days later, him and his wife and his children hit the road as traveling preachers, preaching the the healing power and the, the change that comes through knowing Jesus. He was a part of a big revival in Nashville in 1885 that would become world famous. Reporters would come to cover it because of just how many people were being converted and being saved. And there are, are, I mean, several people did get saved, several people that would go on to be famous. Uh, one of them, probably the most notable, Tom Ryman. <laughs> Tom Ryman became a partner with Samuel Jones Ministry, and he was also this really wealthy, wealthy businessman whose river boats were home to casinos, bars, gambling, and the, basically the 1800s equivalent of strip clubs. And he owned several of these. I mean, that was just a huge part of his fortune. But his new faith told him he needed to stop. So he cleaned up the riverboats. He basically dried up that entire business in Nashville because he owned so much of it that when he quit, there was really no money left to go around. Uh, he then set aside a fund for traveling ministers and speakers. He wanted them to have just the best things they could possibly have. And one of the things he wanted was if another evangelist came to town like Sam Jones, he wanted them to have the best building to preach in with the best acoustics. And so he built this big, gorgeous auditorium um, in the middle of Nashville to do so. When Tom Ryman died, uh, he was known as just this great businessman and philanthropist, very generous. You know, the old guy who would have been basically dying is known as like the hustler strip club owner guy. That's not what they remember. They remembered this unbelievably generous, Christ-loving businessman. And Jones preached his funeral, and he decided we're going to rename this building because they did it in front of that building he built. We were going to rename it the Ryman Auditorium. Uh, but later, that name would get changed to the much more famous name it's known as now, the Grand Old Opry. Jones would travel all over the country in just 1885 he was invited so many places that he gave a thousand sermons and preached to nearly three million people he is said to be responsible for about 500,000 conversions in his own lifetime and he was also said to be the most famous preacher in america second only to dl moody yeah there's a lot to go over you know there's a lot that we could dig into about this man who really isn't that well known today is i mean sam p jones is not i I never very, heard of him. Not a very familiar name. But he has such an incredibly vast and fascinating life. As we go into this sermon, it is a sermon that he does definitely tie around to temperance in his own life uh, and the struggles that he had with that and how it affected the people around him. But it, at the heart of it, at the root of it, it's, it's about a man who is warning people against sin. Quit your meanness. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. 2 Corinthians 7 2. St. Paul knocked at the inner door of the church of Corinth. He was met by that church and he was asked, Upon what ground do you demand so great a privilege? And he replied, On the grounds first, I have wronged no man with my tongue. I have corrupted no man by my example. I have defrauded no man in any business. 
Jesus Christ watched the doors of his kingdom when he stood among men, with the most uncompromising and most untiring scrutiny. And when the young man approached Christ and would have entered the kingdom, and Jesus looked upon him as he asked the question, What must I do that I get into the kingdom? Jesus looked at him and said, Keep the commandments. The young man said exultantly, Why, Master, all these I have kept from my youth up. And Jesus looked him in the face and said, One thing you still lack. And the young man walked away. I suppose his disciples, if they had been as worldly as we are, would have said, Master, that's a magnificent young man. He's a very rich young man. He stands well in the community, and he only lacks one thing. Let's take him in. He will give tons to the church, and he will pay largely. We have few members of that sort, and he's got money to pay our expenses. Why, Master, if he lacks but one thing, let's take him in. One thing you still lack, said Christ, and the young man turned and went away, and that's the last he heard of him. The disciples caught at the same spirit and taught men this, that you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. They taught us if any man loves the world, the love of God is not in him. If any man has not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. A large church membership does not mean much here now. It does not mean much anywhere, under any circumstances. And I thank God that with the state of things I now find in existence everywhere, it doesn't amount to much with this world. We ought to quit asking the question, what church do you belong to? But we ought to ask, how do you live now? How have you been doing? Do you pay your debts? Do you live right and live good and keep the commandments? Brethren, an open profession, an outward profession that isn't backed up by the possession of the principles of Christianity is not worth the paper your name is enrolled on. I want to see the day in this country when church membership means consecration, righteousness, and godliness. I'm a natural, innate, from inward being, an inborn hater of shams and humbugs. And above all humbugs that ever cursed this world, the religious humbug is the nastiest. That's the truth. I will give you a little illustration. At Harvard, I believe it was, there was in the college an old professor, one of those thick glasses old fellows, nearsighted, who was a wonderful bugologist. He knew bugology better than he did manology and he was acquainted with all the bugs from Adam down. And he had all kinds of them in frames hung up around his office. In their mischief and as a prank, the students got the body of one bug and took the legs of another and the head of another and the wings of another and put them together just as if nature had formed it that way. They all trooped downstairs together in the old professor's room, and one of the boys says, Professor, what kind of bug is this? And the professor stood up and took the card on which the bug was pinned, and he cast his eyes on it. And after looking at it a while, he said, Gentlemen, this is a humbug. Now you have my idea of a humbug. It's a fellow that has a heart that belongs to the church, and a head that is run by the world, and his hands by the devil. And he's just nothing but a sort of grotesque mixture. God deliver us from the humbugs in the church. Let's be only one of in kind. And let that be that we are a good Christian. If I were asked now, what is the trouble in Cincinnati? The greatest trouble. Trouble you can't overcome as easily as other troubles. I believe I would answer that the greatest trouble in Cincinnati is that you have too many churches here. I don't mean to say there are too many buildings or too many pastors. I would not tear down a church in this city, nor hush the voice of a single preacher. I would not demolish a single church organization in the town. But I'll tell you the trouble. I will take this church here for an illustration. Your minister, 
you know, is the pastor of two churches, and he has had a hard time of it too, I tell you. For one church is about as much as any preacher can look after. The one church you have has an enrolled list of members, but you have a church on the inside of that. And whenever a man gets on the inside of the inside church, then he can talk about the communion of the saints and fellowship of the Spirit and walk with God. A man who gets inside of the inside of a church is safe for all time. But how many get there? I reckon if you would call a meeting of the truly spiritual members, you could hold it in some little side room here. You wouldn't have to call it in this great room we are in now. It would be lost here. Even double the handful of your truly spiritual members would look lonely in here, and you would have to get them in the front. That's a bad state of things. How many men in this church, and there is no better church in the city, love God with all their hearts and love their neighbors as themselves? I am glad for anybody to have more money than I have, and more land than I ever expected to have, and more stocks and bonds than I could ever get. But I ain't willing for any man that walks this earth to have more faith than I have. I can get as much as a soul fool, and that's about as much as an angel can get. If I am a Christian, I will be a Christian. If I'm a Methodist, I will be a Methodist. If I'm a Presbyterian, I'll be a Presbyterian. And if I'm a Baptist, I'm going to be one all over, through and through. But I wouldn't be a little, old, dried up, knock-kneed, one-horse, shriveled nothing anywhere. Haven't you ever felt some time away down in your soul that you wanted to get above all this? Haven't you had a desire to rise up above the sight of this kind of little stuff? Tired of being the small fish, little sardines? Why, we couldn't put 20 of the Christians here in a box. Haven't you ever had a glorious feeling in your soul that made you feel for a minute as if you wanted to be a whale? You have never known much about faith if you never felt in your soul as if you wanted to be somebody. Something so big that you feel as if you could fly up and up and up. Then you can know something about what faith is. Religion's a grand thing. There is nothing on earth like it and nothing in heaven better than religion. A poor tempest-tossed, tempest-driven soul, thrown here and there in helpless wandering, tired, restless, and hungry, finds a haven in it. Oh, how dark it was once for me. How hungry this poor soul was once. How like the crest of a whale. I knew no rest, but I found it in religion. Religion! Religion! It's a great word. In its etymological sense, it means that there is something in this small universe that can take up a poor, wandering, hungry, restless soul and tie it back to God. Religion means to bring the soul back to its moorings. That's it. I have often thought of the picture of the Lake of Genesaret, and as I looked at the calm, placid little lake, surrounded on all sides by rugged, towering mountains, I have thought that the winds of the storm could never harm it. But if there was any place on earth where the flower winds of heaven more fiercely contested for supremacy, it was on this little lake of Genesaret. Christ was once riding over this lake in a boat with his disciples, and the Savior was below in the cabin sleeping, when suddenly a fierce storm arose, and the little ship began to toss and pitch and rock and fearfully, and the disciples, trembling with fear, ran and aroused him, and said, Master, wake up, we are engulfed, we will be drowned. Christ opened his eyes and raised himself up, and wiping the spray from his forehead, walked up to the other side of the little ship, and gathered the waves up to him on his lap, like a mother tending her child, and the seas subsided, and the winds blew no more. And the disciples said, What manner of man is this, that the winds and waves obey him? 
Blessed Christ, with my poor soul, tempest-tossed and driven, I'll crawl up under the cross, and He will pull my poor, tired soul up in His great loving arms, and sweet peace will enfold me, and I'll walk away singing to Him, I will. Brethren, there's something in religion that will make a man of us. There's something in religion for preachers and people. The more religion a preacher has, blessed be to God, the better it is for him. And the more religion a merchant has, the better it is for him. And the more religion a farmer has, the better it is for him. Blessed be God. Religion is not only the best thing in the universe, but it is free for all. Receive us. Why? I have wronged no man with my tongue. A man's tongue has a great deal to do with his religion, or rather a man's religion has a great deal to do with his tongue. We've got sanctified people all over this country. They are sanctified in a thousand senses except the sense in which St. James talked about sanctification. Hear his description of a sanctified man. Listen. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. A man who has learned to manage this term has it right. I believe in sanctification as strongly as justification. But brethren, sanctification means a great deal more, perhaps, than you have conceived. A Christian preacher in Augusta went down to St. James Church one night to a holiness meeting, a sanctified meeting, where sanctified people met. Next day, he met the pastor of St. James Church on the street and said, I learned last night for the first time the difference between justification and sanctification. Well, how is that, said the pastor? Why, I found out last night that justification meant to satisfy God with man and a man with God. That is justification. And sanctification means to satisfy a fellow with himself. And I thought to myself, there's something in that as sure as you live. Justification satisfies a man with God and God with man. And sanctification satisfies a man with himself. I have heard people talk as if they were well satisfied with themselves. But I never found many in their neighborhood who were well satisfied with them. Don't let anybody come and say, I'm only talking about sanctification. I am not. Some of the best men on earth practice and live sanctification. But you are obliged to have something more. You must get something. Lord Jesus, Master, help men to see that religion does not consist in what I profess, but it consists also in how I live. I have no objection to a man's professing sanctification. It's as much privilege to confess sanctification as it is justification. I don't quarrel with a man as long as he lives on a level with what he professes, but when he gets down below that, I'm going for him sure. The tongue, says St. James, I ran off at a tangent for a while is full of deadly poison. Many a person in this city, if you will go to their homes and sit by their side and put your ear to their heart, you can hear their heart's blood drip, 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 and you say, what does that? And they'll tell you an unkind tongue stabbed it there. God pity a man that will take his tongue and stab a man's character with it. I'll tell you another thing. This tongue is not only capable of stabbing Christ, but the tongue is the cause of all the trouble in our midst. It's not what we do, but what we say, that kicks up the mischief all around. It's what we say. I have known men who would leave home in the morning and go down to their stores and be as polite to their women customers and flatter them as sweetly as you can imagine. But when they go home at night, they talk to their wives as if they were old bears. Have you ever heard of a case like that, my friend? No? Didn't you see one in the glass tonight when you brushed your hair before you came to the meeting? 
Many a time, a good, painstaking wife has carefully arranged everything to make the home pleasant and bring smiles to her husband's face. But before he has been in the house five minutes, he takes that tongue of his and stabs his wife to the heart. Even before her kiss of welcome is dry on his lips, and she goes upstairs and buries her face in her hands and sobs and cries as though her heart would break. God pity a woman that has an old bear for a husband. And many times a poor man has toiled all day with all kinds of pressure on him, all because of his kindness to the wife at home, goes home, and before he has been in the house five minutes, the woman that should be his soul's delight decides to stab him with her sharp tongue, and he says in his heart, I wish to God I were dead. I think the finest tombstone I ever saw, and the prettiest epitaph I ever saw, was when I was visiting an old friend of mine. After dinner, he took me into the garden, and in the most prominent place there was erected a beautiful tombstone of white marble in memory of his wife, and on it I read her name and the date of her death, and her simple epitaph was this line, She made home pleasant. I remember the old Irishman who said, I hope I'll never live to see my wife married again. Brethren, let us be kind to the wife, for she has left her father and her home and her mother and given up all things for us, and she gives her life to us, and we ought to be kind to her. Never let a word slip from your tongue that will bring a drop of blood from her heart. We should be kind and loving to our children, too. I remember once, at a camp meeting two or three years ago, I was talking to two or three of the brothers after dinner, and to one of them, a little girl, a rosy-cheeked and bright-eyed fairy, ran up and asked him some question, and he snapped out a word to her that almost made her faint. So frightened was she. I cried, You brute, you! Brethren, you can almost crucify one of your children with one stroke of your tongue. How cruel it is. I know how it is myself. Sometimes when I was busy at work, my little boy would bother me and I would snap at him and drive him away. But I afterward hunted him up and begged his forgiveness. But some of you would sooner die than do that. Control your tongue and be kind to your children. Think of the picture. What if I look upon that sweet child with his arms around my neck and he looks with bearing eyes of love in my face for the last time? And when his little arms are forever folded on his chest and he is gone from us, I never want to have to go in the funeral home and look upon my child and say, Oh, how his icy cold fingers point me back to the past and to my hard words and actions to that once angelic child. God give us Christly teaching. Brethren, get your tongues under perfect control. This is one ground on which you can enter the inner church. Get your tongues straight. But upon what other ground must I rely? Because I have corrupted no man by my example. Brethren, what we need now is a few good examples. You go home, mother, and seat your little lovely daughter on your lap and ask her, Daughter, who is the best woman in the world? And she will say, Why, you, Mama. Daughter, whom would you rather be like than anybody else? And the sweet little child will say, You, Mama. Ask the child such questions as that, and she will answer always, You, Mama. Ah, sister, that child is mistaken. Yet she is that way. There's no doubt about it. The saddest thing a father ever said to me in all of my experience was this. I was a pastor of a church then, and I have been pastor for eight years. 
and know about all the relations of pastor and people. I tell you, brethren, you can't love your pastor too much or pray for him too much. He needs your examples and prayers. This brother said to me about four weeks after I had preached a sermon in his town, I heard your sermon on home religion and it awoke me. He was a man of intelligence. I said, what about it? I went home, he said, and studied my children for four weeks and all their characteristics and all the phases of their character and life, and I reached a verdict. What was that, I asked. Well, I found out that my children haven't got a single fault that I or their mother hasn't got, or a single virtue that we have not got. A direct copy of my wife and myself, our children are. Our examples. A father said to me once, and he was a conscientious good man, too. A few days ago, I was in a grocery store where they sold provisions in the front part and kept beer and other liquors for sale in the back room. I was in there buying groceries when a gentleman came in and said to me, Won't you have a glass of beer? Without a thought, although I was never in the habit of it, I accepted. I walked back and the beer was drawn, and as I put it to my lips, my little boy pulled at my finger and said, Papa, what's that you're drinking? I stopped drinking and told the little fellow it was beer. After a while, the child again pulled my finger and asked me, Papa, what was that you were drinking just now? And I told him again it was a beer, lager beer. And so it was again as we were going up the street. My child pulled at my finger again and said, What did you say that was you were drinking, Papa? And as he asked that again, Oh God, my God, I would have given all the world to have been able to recall that act. I'm afraid that one act will make my child a drunkard. He learned from my example. Our examples, brethren, hear me. I will never do or suffer myself to do or suffer anyone else to do in my home, in the radius of my influence, anything that would or could curse mine or anybody's child to sin. You can have cards at your house if you want to, but until this world burns down, I never will, so help me God. They will never be brought in or remain in my house. Do you ask me why? Nine-tenths of the gamblers of this city were raised in Christian homes. They are the most polite and refined gentlemen in town, and if cards in any Christian home ever made a gambler out of a Christian boy, then so long as life will last, I will never have cards in my house." If whiskey, wine, and beers ever damned a member of the church's son, then, so long as I have given my home to God, whiskey, wine, and beer will have no place there. And I will tell you another thing. Old brother whiskey and old sister wine, you are just raising up drunkards by the hundreds. And I reckon if God Almighty let your sort of folks into heaven, the very angels would call out, Brother whiskey and sister wine, did you manage to get in here? And some women have reached the degraded stratum where they are nothing more or less than barkeepers for their husband, stirring their margaritas and mixing his drinks. Next to the biggest fool that God's eyes ever looked upon is a woman who stirs drinks for her husband. But the biggest fool God's eyes ever beheld is a woman that will marry a man with whiskey on his breath. I know what I am talking about. I believe if I had had such a wife as some drinking men in this city have today, I would now be in a drunkard's grave in a drunkard's hell this very moment. But thank God my wife never would touch, taste, nor handle, nor suffer it in her house. I have had a woman come to me 
who in her young married life had indulged her husband and seen that his wines and liquors were carefully prepared for him, I have had her come to me with a haggard face and cry out, Oh, Mr. Jones, in God's name, help me to save my husband from death and hell. And she gave her husband the first years of her married life and the encouragement of drinking. An old woman in a county in Georgia, I was preaching prohibition down there, and I never felt more at home preaching Jesus Christ to sinners than I felt down there preaching prohibition. I know that it's unpopular in this city. I've been preaching prohibition experimentally, practically, and collectively, and personally for about 13 years, and it's never hurt me yet. But whiskey would knock me out cold and was looking to take me in about 13 months' time. In one county where I was talking about prohibition, this old snackletooth, wrinkled-faced bag said of me, I hope God will kill that man before election day for trying to rob people of their living. But this old Miss So-and-so had buried three husbands in drunkards' graves. My Lord, what sort of an old hag was that? I'll tell you another thing. I don't know how the preachers have been preaching to you. They are all better men than I am. But if the occupants of the 200 pulpits in this city will stand up and talk for law and order, sobriety and righteousness will prevail in this city. God, wake up the pulpits and help the brothers to talk about things that are damning this city. One preacher will talk about evangelical methods, and another preacher will split hairs miles long on real and unreal regeneration. I never hear a man read this text, with all due respect to the preachers. Except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. I say, I never hear that text read from the pulpit, but I wish you to add, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Jesus Christ knew how to preach, brethren, and Jesus Christ touched that subject to one man, an intelligent man who staggered back and asked, Why, how can this thing be? Hear me, brother. God's gospel is to teach a man to quit his meanness. Come to God and let the Lord explain his own works and let God do his own work. I heard of a grand preacher who had a grand revival. He preached day and night for three weeks on regeneration, and he never had a single convert. But brother, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is adequate to reach every sinner in this city. I am not going to run the grand old ship of Zion about ten miles from shore. I'm going to bring her to the land. Ten million sinners might look at the old ship away off and say, There she is, but I can't get to her. For if I tried to swim to her, I would drown. Brother, brother, let's run the old ship in until her keel strikes the shore. Tell the world, all aboard, this grand old ship is going by. You can't get the old ship of Zion too close to sinners. I have corrupted no man with my life. My example has been right. That's it. I have wronged no man. I have set no bad example. In addition to that, Paul said, I have defrauded no man in a business transaction. Oh, for hands like these to work for God and for man. Well, I have talked considerably over an hour. I did not intend to. But hear me. Let's think about these things. I tell you, I never... I tell you, I never want to see a revival in this city or anywhere else that isn't bottomed on bedrock. Let's go down until you hear your boot heels grating and grinding against the rock of ages. None of your cornstalk revivals. We want the sort of revival that will make men do the clean thing. If we can have that sort of revival, I want to see it. 
but not cornstalk revivals. Do you know what a cornstalk revival is? Well, if you were to pile up a lot of cornstalks as high as this house and burn them up, there wouldn't be a handful of ashes left over. We want a revival of righteousness. We want a revival of honesty. We want a revival of cleanness and purity, of debt paying, of prayer meetings, of family prayer, and of paying our brothers a little more salary. That's the sort of revival we want. The Lord give us this sort. One more illustration in conclusion. Some months ago, a man was fearfully crippled in his right leg by a railroad accident. It was fearfully mangled and bruised. They wanted to amputate the leg, but he said, Oh, I don't want to lose my limb. Preserve it if you can. They watched at his side until at last the surgeon said, My friend, the crisis has come when we must amputate your leg. He said, Doctor, has it reached that point? Yes, said the surgeon. Well, said he submissively, if there is no chance to save my leg, get your knife and go to work. When they got all ready and laid the patient on the table to commence the fearful operation, the surgeons desired to administer chloroform, but the mangled man said, I do not want to take that. If I die, I want to die in my full consciousness, but I want you to let me know by some sign when I begin to sink so that I can breathe my spirit out in prayer. They told him that he couldn't stand the operation without chloroform, but he said that he could. The doctor picked up the knife and said to the patient, If you see me lay the knife down on the table, you may know that you are sinking. The doctor commenced the operation, and the man did not flinch. When he struck the arteries, he laid his knife down to adjust them, and the young man took it for a sign that he was dying and commenced praying. The surgeon picked up the knife and resumed his work. In a few minutes, the operation was over, and he said he was saved, and he turned to the surgeon and said, Doctor, when you picked the knife up from the table and began your operation, it was the sweetest sensation I ever felt in my life. What do you mean, said the doctor? I mean, said he, that those sensations meant life for me. Now, brother, when God Almighty throws down the pruning knife, it is a sign that you are sinking, the sword of the divine spirit cutting through the tendrils of sin. But thank God, he has not laid down the sword. The sword of the Spirit means life. Oh, brother, come to life in the presence of Jesus and die in his love. God help us to take these things home with us. What I think this sermon does so well is it... He's got so many great illustrations. He's got so many stories, examples, where you can see, like, those are those are moments to him that really affected his life, and he's seeing this effect that it has on it. The one where, the, the story he told about his son asking him what he was drinking, you know, over and over again, and that's just taking with him the idea that this is making an impression on him. Whether that, whatever technicalities or legalistic things might go around this, the real the reality of it is, it's making an impression on his son, and that's something that I think he's good at. And I think that is something the Lord opens our eyes to and the Spirit opens our eyes to. The more we're in line with him is how the sins we have in our life are, are damaging not only our work with God, but how they're holding not only ourselves back, but the people around us back. Excellently said. I, I, 
I thought the same story actually stood out to me yeah. and it stood out to Elise too when she was listening. Um, it, it, you know, I said at the bottom of his sermon, it's like, look at the effect we fathers have. And it's again coming out in this sermon too, that look at that effect. But the other thing too is, okay, maybe some of you are listening. It's like, yeah, but I don't, I don't drink alcohol. Or maybe you're listening like, okay, that's for the 1800s. We don't, you know, there's a reason that movement died. Sure, sure, sure. I hear you. But if you take everything he said about being a slave to alcohol and you just apply it to a different mm. sin, it's really not so different. It applies just as good. You know, maybe that sin for you is social media addiction. Maybe that sin for you is um, pornography. Or maybe that sin for you is spending money wrong. Or or maybe it's put whatever it is for you in there and go, you know, if you need to, go really listen to that sermon. Every time he talks about drunkenness or alcohol, you put your sin in there. It's going to play the same way. It ruins you. It destroys you. And you have to go to Christ for freedom from it. And I think Samuel P. Jones does a great job in the sermon of making you realize my sin is really bad. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Justin Ray. Justin Ray is the founder of soundandworship.com, a website designed to point Christians to worship music from theologically sound resources. He is also the host of the If Songs Could Preach podcast. You can go check that out, If Songs Could Preach podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, We would love for you to give us a five-star review and maybe some writing too. It really helps that people can see the comments on Apple Podcasts or maybe you're listening on a different podcast player. If it allows ratings, wherever it is, no matter how small it is, it does help us out and helps other people find us. And it helps them when they do find us say, hey, this is the kind of show I want to uh, be a part of and listen to. If you can only leave us a five-star, thank you. If you can leave us a five-star with a comment, that's even better and it does help out more. So thank you so much for that. We would really appreciate it and again it's a little it may feel like a little thing or maybe for you it is a big thing but regardless of whether how you feel about it it helps us a lot and we do really appreciate it and we definitely read all of them this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.